Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good evening and welcome to The Man About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. My name is Chris Kuzmi. My cohort Mary is away on business and I miss her already, dang it. We are going to air part two of, uh, of our Hong Kong shows. This is pre-recorded on a recent trip overseas. Uh, we're going to visit Young Master Ales. But before we do, i got a couple of announcements. We are really, really excited about New York City Beer Week. We're coming into uh, New York City Beer Week 2014 and there's lots of awesome, awesome fun, namely this event on Friday night at Grand Central Terminal. For the first time ever, uh, we're going to have a beer festival in Grand Central Terminal. It's going to be freaking amazing. We've got some really, really great, amazing beers, amazing brewers, amazing friends, and some amazing music from uh, underneath music underneath New York, uh, namely uh, Kathy Greer, also known as New York City Subway Girl, uh, Sal Yususo, who's an old friend of mine, amazing uh, Cora player, uh, and then the Xylo folks who are totally fun doing old school 20s music um on xylophone and bass in a pink gorilla suit and a red cookie monster suit totally crazy totally fun you should come um find out more at nycbeerweek.com and secondly uh before we move on it is that time of year again the american home brewers association it's uh the governing committee elections there are eight spots open uh and they're there's a great roster of people uh, up, up for the running. Some of them guests of Foment About It, like our friend Drew Beecham. Uh, some other familiar faces like Susan Rudd, Roxanne Westendorf, and uh, actually Go go East Coast. Uh, we got our friend Colin Presby from Pennsylvania. Uh, there is not much East Coast representation on uh, the governing committee, but uh, we'd love to see more. So our votes are in. Anyway, please enjoy today's show, Foment About It. Mary and I are sitting here in uh, Apley Chow in Hong Kong, at near Aberdeen, or in Hong Kong Island. We're staring out at Lama Island across the way. It's a beautiful view, and we are here at... Young Master Ales! <laughs> at Young Master Ales, with our friend Rohit Dugar and Ulrich Altbar. Tell us what this is. Well, you're in our tasting room. Um, we are Hong Kong's newest microbrewery. We started brewing in November. Currently, we do all ales, and um, you know we want to do a few classic styles and a few experimental, innovative styles. So you know we want to have fun with it, and hopefully, uh, you know, add another dimension to Hong Kong's beer culture. Hong Kong's beer culture. Yeah. Tell us about Hong Kong's beer culture. I mean, I've been coming here since 1995, and it has been. I've said this in another episode that we just recorded last night. It's been a desert, and we, there hasn't been any microbrewing uh, here or any, any craft brewing. Um, what has your experience been? No, I think that's exactly right, which is which is why we are doing what we're doing. Um, I moved to Hong Kong only like less than three years ago, and there was no good beer to be had, and you know. Um, I was home brewing, so that was kind of the only way to have half decent beer. Um, and then, you know, one thing led to another, decided that I want to just stop doing what I was doing. I used to work in finance and, you know, pursue this as a full-time, uh, full-time profession. 
and Uli and I met uh, about a year and a half ago, I think, uh, roughly, and uh, you know we talked about this concept and developed it. And uh, once all the pieces came together, finding the right site, equipment, and everything, we started Brew. It's hard to believe, but Ulrich, you're not you're not uh, Chinese at all. I'm German. I think. <laughs> he, looks, he looks Chinese. He looks <laughs> I actually came here in '99 for the first time, working for the only microbrewery at this time. Okay. Uh, which what was that? Uh, at this time, it was called South China Brewing Company. Okay. Uh, later rebranded as Hong Kong Beer Company. Okay. Uh, which just uh, changed ownership and say will reopen in the near future. But in the moment, it's just us on the market right now mm-hmm. as microbrewery. Um, during the SARS crisis, when this brewery closed down briefly, I switched to a job in mainland China. But I have my family here, so of course I was eager to come back. To Hong Kong and work with Wuhan on this project, which sounded very interesting to me. How when did you meet here in Hong Kong? Just online through yes, yeah, through websites. one of the professional websites, social professional websites, LinkedIn. LinkedIn, probably, yeah. And, and you were searching for brewers or things. That yeah, were exactly. Interesting brewing. When you went back to mainland China, was that brewery related? Well? Yes, I was working for one of the major hotel chains who okay. opened some brew pubs in various cities of the mainland and I helped them with the first two and took over a third one uh, which increasingly further and further away from Hong Kong so I was eager to get back to this place actually. <laughs> that's, that's great. So you guys were together from conception to, to glass on yes, this, pretty on this much, project. Yeah. And so when you decided on the equipment, how did you decide on the size that you wanted to deal with in Hong Kong? I mean, was it a kind of, do you feel like you were going conservatively based on where you thought people might or might not go or how people yeah. would, re- would receive your... No, I think we were conservative and we went to the 10 hectoliter system, uh, but we also wanted to make sure we have enough scale to at least, you know, brew enough beer to pay rent and other fixed costs. So 10 worked out to be sort of this magic number where, uh, you know, it's sort of the minimum size you need to actually function. Um, uh, I think, uh, you know, we did consider initially doing bigger, but, you know, given this whole thing is completely new in Hong Kong, we weren't sure if, uh, if that'd be too much, of, too much to bite. And also we, th- we thought that, you know, if it really does take off and we want a bigger brewery, we could jump from a 10 to, you know, 40, 50 or something like that. If we are somewhere in between, it's sort of that, you know, no man's land, neither small nor big. So it takes, so I think we, we like that as a progression from 10 to 40 or 50 rather than try to do 20, maximize it and think of 100 type thing. So. Right. Was space an issue or finding a space? How, it's how? one of the biggest issues. I mean, space, um, I mean, rents are high. Everybody knows that in Hong Kong. Even industrial buildings are expensive. Um, but beyond that, I think just finding sites that are suitable. And it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle. You have to fit so many different things together. Um, you know, equipment needs to be able to come in. There needs to be water supply and drainage and enough electricity, enough floor loading capacity. Um, you know, there's just so many variables. And then even when you find the right place, many landlords would just say no to having a brewery in their building because... Partly because they just don't understand what it is, and you know, rather than having a warehouse which is dry goods, uh, you know, that's uh, that's something they're comfortable with. But having a brewery, you know, they're just worried that something bad will happen to their building. So, so yeah, finding a site was was challenging. 
and they still let you do, do this brewery on the fourth floor. This is not a ground floor brewery. Yes. All this water <laughs> is on the fourth floor yeah. of, this, of this building. Yeah, which is not ideal, but unfortunately we have to live with it. I mean, ground floor units are available, but they're like, you know, four to five times as expensive. And uh, that just makes the project completely unfeasible. Unless you have a really large brewery, then, then I think it could potentially work. But for our size, it just we couldn't find a suitable ground floor space. We tried. This yeah. view is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it works. It beats the hell out of my view from the basement. The non-window situation. So we're currently drinking. What are we drinking? Right. You're drinking our, uh, what we call our Chacha Soba Ale. It's made with buckwheat. Uh, it's just a super light and delicate beer. Uh, inspiration for this is a chilled bowl of soba noodles, which is a little bit earthy and supposed to be really refreshing. You taste the grain a little bit. We use unmalted, unroasted soba, uh, which is what's used in the noodles. I mean, there are other soba beers out there which use roasted soba and they're completely different. Uh, in this, we just wanted to highlight the grain and have something be refreshing. Mm -hmm. What would be tips on brewing with soba? Uh, I, think, out I think particularly with unmalted and unroasted soba, the, the key is uh, it's you need to gelatinize it first because the starch, you know, if it was roasted, you wouldn't have to do that step. So we do a mash in which we basically boil the soba and make almost like a kanji and then cool it down and then start the actual mashing which also we begin at so lower temperatures, just like you could do with some wheat beers mm -hmm. and things. So we start fairly low at, you know, around 35 degrees Celsius and work our way up. And then you said this also has a touch of... Yeah, it has a touch of matcha or green tea, which we add after the boil. Um, in our case, we add it in the whirlpool. Um, we, you know, you, you have green tea infused soba noodles, that's sort of what we were going for. But we also didn't want it to taste like tea, ultimately, so we kept the note very faint. Um, you know, so, but of course, that's something as homebrewers, you know, you can experiment with if you yeah. like more or less. What hops are you using in this? Uh, this is extremely low hop. Yeah. We, we actually use sterling. We, we just wanted sort of base level of minimal bitterness uh, to balance things out, but, but it's definitely not a hoppy beer. It's really light, fantastically drinkable. I think yeah. the green tea kind of adds to a kind of an earthiness kind of dances with that little yeah. bit of hops, but it's perfect. So I'm curious about sourcing your ingredients yeah. here in Hong Kong. So yeah. last night we met you at HK Brewcraft, mm -hmm. and we were talking about a little bit about sourcing homebrew ingredients. So how is it as a brewery? I think in the bigger scheme of things, that was actually easier than other problems we had to face. I mean, Hong Kong is a free port. Um, you know, it's not that hard to get things from anywhere in the world, really. Um, we get most of, in fact, all of our malt from Germany. Uh, we just got a container's worth and we dealt directly with the uh, environment. They supplied it. It was pretty easy. Soba is the only grain we actually source locally. Um, our hops come from the U.S. mostly and some from Australia. And uh, we got pretty lucky here, actually. Uh, one of the U.S. Uh, hop supplier, Yakima Chief, actually has a warehouse in Hong Kong. Even though there are no breweries in Hong Kong, but they supply mainly to mainland China and other places from here. So, you know, for us, it was really convenient to get it directly. And how about East? Uh, east, currently we are, uh, actually, uh, for now, we have a house sale East. We basically use USO5. We start with, with dry East and obviously repitch several generations uh, to the extent timing works out. Uh, we were looking, currently we're not doing any East forward beer. So we wanted something very neutral um, and versatile and resistant. Um, so, you know, 
US05 fits the bill perfectly. Just you know, it's just a good all-round output this season. We have seven matches. In, in fact, for now we only repitched once. Okay. So all like you know, six of the seven matches were fresh pitches because you know, we were brewing it. You know, at least the first few around matches. Around the same time. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah, sure. So. Uh, so and we also didn't want to repitch after we brewed a heavy beer like our IPA. We usually just discard it. Uh, we don't want to brew. Let's say we're brewing a lighter beer next. We try not to because we're drying off and doing other things. Uh, I think it might still be okay, but we try not to brew a lighter beer with the same yeast after a heavy beer. Mm -hmm. For now, we just pitched from the actual sober beer into our winter ale from a very light beer in a very strong beer, so you, so a, you cannot screw up. You had a nice big starter, yeah. <laughs> a 10 liter starter for, for the winter ale. Yeah. We were talking, sorry. Well, I was going to ask how the reception is. So you're, you know, the newest craft, yeah. and one of the only craft beer brewers yeah. in Hong Kong. How has been the reception from both retail, you know, and, and bars, yeah. as well as the public? Yeah, I think reception has been actually very encouraging. We are not at too many places right now. We've basically just started brewing, and uh, only only this only January we really started going out to bars and hosting tastings so this and month. things like that. This month, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so, in terms of end customer feedback from Roundhouse, I think uh, we've actually uh, moved many more kegs than we hoped to. Well, so we were there last night yeah. and. Two of your yeah. kegs had kicked. Yeah. There was only one available. Yes. So. In fact, they, they, they actually keep all five of our beers on tap. That's great. So, in fact, and most four of them kicked. Four <laughs> of the five had kicked. Uh, it's great. So that, that's something we are working with them on. They unfortunately don't have too much space to keep a lot of stock, mm -hmm. so we have to deliver quite frequently. So we made a delivery yesterday, and now they're going to tap them today or something like that. Well, we'll so. look forward to that later. And then, how about the reception? So you, you have yeah. an open tasting room hours, yes. open brewery tours. Yeah, we've, we've just started doing that, like uh, we've done it three weeks in a row, every Saturday, uh, you know, we come over and, you know, have people over from noon to five. The response has been quite good. I mean, we are sort of, for being sort of a bit far away from the city, um, we got, you know, probably uh, 10 to 20 people every weekend coming in, but I think as the word goes out a little bit more, we probably uh, get more people. We're also thinking of doing more and more sort of themed events and add more sort of uh, things to do here uh, besides just, you know, a simple tour and tasting, do food pairings, do, you know, all sorts of different beer themed events. So tell us about some of your other, so obviously yeah. this, this soba beer is very inspired by, yeah. you know, Asian food. Mm -hmm. um, what, what are some of the other beers that you've done that are inspired by? Let me, let me get you a taste of our uh, next beer, which is, I wouldn't say inspired by strictly local traditions. But it's basically our rye beer, um, and we call it the rye old-fashioned. Uh, I actually enjoy drinking rye whiskey quite a bit. It's got a nice uh, sort of spicy character to it. So we basically made a 6% rye beer and infused it in the ferment fermenter with some toasted oak to mimic some of the flavors you get in rye whiskey. And uh, we serve it as is, or we also sometimes present it as a cocktail with a little bit of a uh, touch of syrup, uh, you know, orange bitters, and dress it up with orange or grapefruit peel kind of thing. Um, so beer cocktail? Beer cocktail, exactly. But a very minimal beer cocktail where it's, it's still about the beer, but, you know, you sort of uh, enhance it a bit. I definitely hear this with that, you know, that twist of orange. Yeah. Kind of, kind of yeah. Thing. Tell us about your name. Yeah, Young Master. So... Um, 
we wanted a name that uh, you know that's uh, got an old Hong Kong reference. So when we were brainstorming with people who helped us design the logo, um, one of the team members came, pointed us to this movie that came out in Hong Kong in the 60s or 70s. Um, and the loose translation of the movie name is Young Boss of the Factory. Mm-hmm. And um, it was about um, you know, this, uh, this young guy who's the son of the factory owner. He's a you know, playboy type character, likes to have fun. Um, but as the plot progresses towards the end of the movie, he you know gets serious and you know does the right thing. So we like that interplay between playful and serious, which is what we're about. We're supposed to be fun, and you know we take making it seriously. And we like the reference to old Hong Kong and specifically old industrial Hong Kong. Um, nobody, you know, very few people actually make things in a factory anymore in Hong Kong, and we're trying to do that. So we just liked it on many levels. So master. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. We learned last night that you won last year's Humber competition, first and only Humber competition in Hong Kong uh, that anybody can remember that was documented, of course. What recipe was that? Will we see that uh, out of Young Master? Yes? You, you, you can right now, actually. Okay. Um, no, it was, it was basically just a winter ale. Uh, I wouldn't call it quite a porter, but... Um, uh, but I wanted to design, I, I wanted to make something that's dark and roasty and winter drinking. But then Hong Kong winters are not, uh, you know, not super severe. So we didn't want it. I didn't want it to be super overwhelming and rich. So strike that balance and not have a super heavy body, but still have sort of those roasty notes. So um, so we have that beer here. We call it the Hong Kong Black now. Uh, it's a commercial recreation, so it's not quite the same, but similar to what, what I made last year. Uh, we also use a little bit of Chinese red sugar in it, uh, which has its own sort of uh, different dimension of roasty character. What is that coming from? Yeah. What is the red sugar? Is it's that... just super unrefined Chinese red sugar, you know, made in Hong Kong, the Taipei factory. What's the... so. Yeah, is it what... Beet sugar? Oh, it's, it's, su- it's cane sugar. It's oh, actually cane sugar. Cane sugar. Okay. Yeah. But just very unrefined cane sugar. It's very unrefined sugar and it also helps lighten the body just a bit mm-hmm. uh, because you know it just uh, ferments all the way through yeah um, but it, at the same time it has flavor it's not uh, you know it's not just uh, it's not just alcohol you're not just getting alcohol you're getting some exactly. flavor but we we anyway use a small amount of it just to sort of round everything out mm-hmm. We learned last night also that there are only five bottle shops that focus on craft beer. Do you, do you package it all right now? Do you have plans to package? Currently, we don't have any plans to package in bottles. We only do kegs. 
So I think majority of our customers will be restaurants and bars. Having said that, at retail locations, we do expect to do growlers, uh, as a couple of places are doing already. Um, we'll bottle once in a while special editions, like the barrel-aged beer we plan to make later this year. Uh, we'll just simply hand bottle it. Uh, I think bottling is, on a, you know, doing it consistently is a bit hard for brewery our scale. Um, so we'll, we'll plan that if, if we are lucky enough to have a bigger brewery someday. Yeah. So that was leading to, there are also only a few bars that specialize in craft beer or seem open and amenable to it. Mm-hmm. So as an approach, what has been the response or have you gotten yeah. to the bars that are not necessarily yeah. focused or enthusiastic about craft beer? Yeah, so, so the first part of what you said is totally true. There are very few craft beer bars today. But the second part, are bars open and amenable? I think more and more. Uh, I think uh, everybody I talk to wants to do, I mean, granted I've sort of self-selected a little bit like people have approached whether, you know, our beer will be a fit there or, or not. So, so almost everybody from sort of big hotels to, you know, very independent, creative restaurants, they're very open to it. Uh, and I think a lot of them will actually adopt craft beer. Uh, it's it just takes a little bit of time, especially when it comes to draft, because you know there's there's existing contracts to worry about and there's setups, um, dispensing setups that may need changing and things like that. But I think in terms of openness, that has definitely changed quite a bit in the last just in the last twelve months. Yeah, I, bet. I mean it's just such an exciting time. Seems like yeah. it's a really exciting time in Hong Kong for that. Uh, you also mentioned. Uh, that you have some collaborations set up, and, but there's no other people here locally to really co- be collaborating. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, we, we are hopeful, uh, we're still sorting out the details, but we're hoping to do our first collaboration brew with with a brewery in New Zealand. So you know we haven't uh, fully sorted out the details. Hopefully, logistics and timing work works out. Beertopia is coming up, so some of the brewers will be here. So we can. What is Beertopia, and how many years has it run here in Hong Kong? Beertopia. Uh, is in its third year this year, uh, and it's Hong Kong's only craft beer festival. Um, first year it started small; uh, they were expecting like 500 people, and they still got like 1,500 show up. So it was a clear indication that there's interest. Next year doubled; in, they expected 3,000, and they ended up getting 6,000. Wow. So this year, Beatopia is is sized for 12,000 people. <laughs> so let's let's see, uh, you know, how that plays out. Um, yeah, there's a wide variety of beer from all over the world that's going to be represented. A lot of food and fun over three days, so looking forward to it. Have you done much traveling outside of Hong Kong, and, and what is your sense for the appreciation of craft beer in surrounding cities or, or uh, you know, yeah. this side of the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I've traveled uh, a lot in this region and elsewhere, and um, I think craft beer is, uh, is still in its infancy in this part of the world, but growing pretty fast. I lived in Singapore a while ago, and they had uh, a bunch of microbreweries. They've had them for a long time. Uh, so in that sense, in terms of just the number of microbreweries, they've been much ahead of, of Hong Kong. Uh, I do think that, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, just doing very original sort of brews and things like that, uh, we are hoping to be among the first ones to do more of that in Asia. Um, in China, I think the brewing scene has actually developed quite a bit. 
Um, you know, as Willie knows, in terms of it started probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, it started with a lot of uh, German style uh, brew pubs, and now there are, you know, several sort of very innovative brew pubs like uh, Great Leap in Beijing or Boxing Cat in Shanghai. Yeah, I mean, it started basically in uh, Beijing in the Kempinski Lufthansa Center with a Paulana collaboration, which was a German style brew house with German kitchen. And say after that they opened a few more, and then it started spreading. I mean, like there are names better known now, like Boxing Cat or Great Leap Brewery. Uh, but this is pretty much it. You have the brew pub size, and then there is a long time nothing, and then there you have these mega breweries. So there is no no medium section in China. But uh, in terms of brew pubs, it spread it a lot. It spread it to, to second and third tier cities. But uh, of course, the most innovative are, are still in the, the East Coast bigger cities. I, I used to work in Shenzhen, Sanya, and uh, latestly in Hangzhou, which were mostly German-themed brew pub. Um, in the style uh, as Paulana, but not exactly the same. Uh, innovative breweries like we do here um, is mostly in Shanghai and a little bit in Beijing, I have to say. So, but it's it's up and coming. Rohit is completely right; it's in its infancy, but it's growing, and the interest is there, especially on the mainland. The people are catching up very quickly, as we saw with the wine development. It's now happening with the beer, so there is a, a huge potential. It's awesome to see people finally expecting that. And this is Hong Kong is an interesting culture. It's always seemed very based on classism, and you know, you drink wine because it's a status thing, yes. and for many reasons. And, and beer has not been seen on that platform for yeah. people who drink for those reasons. That's true. <laughs> you know, that's true. I mean, that seems to be more and more acceptable. That uh, a nice handcrafted glass of beer is a, a perfect accompaniment for an, a, a nice dinner. You don't need to open an expensive bottle of wine. Right. You can have a nice glass of beer with your with your fish, with your steak, with whatever. Yeah, and so that's a question too. Because of that classism, because of how people buy here in Hong Kong, have you found pricing your beer a challenging thing, or saying what would move faster and what doesn't, or is this a concern as of yet? I mean, it's still pretty young, and um, not and you're not, not, you're not bottling, so it's not yeah. that much of an issue. No, pricing honestly has not uh, been a major concern. Um, I think it's been like the customers we've talked to, our prices are quite reasonable. They're definitely meaningfully higher than sort of mass market beer, mm-hmm. but they're also lower than, um, you know, imported craft beer, which has to, you know, come through weeks of shipping and things like that. So, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's not been sort of a major, major issue for us. It's usually been, um, you know, we would be at more bars today and we will be soon, but the, the reason we are not at certain bars is usually more, you know, it's, it's got nothing to do with price usually. In uh, the United States, there's a three-tier system, yeah. Uh, and but it's state by state if you're a brewer. So in New York City, if I wanted to sell, if I had a license to sell to yeah. a bar down the road, I could personally bring it. But other states, you have to go through a distributor. Yes. If I want to sell my beer to another state, I definitely have to go through a distributor. How, what, is, what happens here if you wanted to sell to... Um, uh, the, yeah, there's no restriction on direct selling. We, we sell direct as of now, so... And does that that that's for Hong Kong proper? But what if you wanted to go into Guangzhou? Like, just out of curiosity, do you know if you could drive? Can go to Guangzhou? I I think uh, 
I think there are some, yeah, I, I think you could, uh, but you just have to, I, I mean, it's usually easier to go through an agent, but I don't think there's anything. Yeah, I'm just, so, just curious uh, about that. that that's even, or even Macau, like, what if you got a Macau contract? Uh, Macau, actually, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about what the rules are in Macau. But, uh, uh, Macau had its own uh, small breweries before. I don't know if they have in the moment. I don't think so anymore. Uh, I think actually it's less restrictive than on the mainland. In the mainland, the main concern is you have to find a way in through hygiene restrictions. And this is, for now at least, better go through an established agent. May it be the Guangxi, the connections they have to these agents. May it be the, the government official just trust their own agents more. So it's for newcomers, it's quite difficult to get into the market. A friend of mine trying to export other foodstuffs through Hong Kong to the mainland and there are, there's a lot of red tape. Yeah. And I actually put him in contact with a friend of mine in Guangdong who runs a little chain of bakeries. So he's used to all this government issues and running all this hygiene standards. But uh, I think they're working eight months on it already without much progress. So wow. yeah, yeah. you have to have a long break. Like yeah. And on that note, so you mentioned that a lot of times, as far as the bars go, the distributors sign a contract, or the bars sign a contract yeah. for, that's for a specific amount of time in order to keep one beer on tap? Or? That, that's right. I mean, usually it's more common. Uh, I mean, the mass market beer makers, they um, the, the way they sell is they actually go to a bar and offer uh, you know, big one-time financial incentives to keep their beer and sign a contract for a period of time. Uh, and they provide the dispensing system and everything else. In fact, in the States, in some places, it's not legal for uh, for distributors right. to, 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 do uh, right. to do that. But here, uh, it's, it's actually the, the common uh, thing to do. Um, so yeah, that's that's definitely a challenge. Um, even bars that want to keep our beer, they have to either wait out, or you know, or incur some one-time financial costs in uh, you know getting rid of the system and putting a new system in place. Um, you know, it's as a small brewery, we're not able to. We can definitely provide bars with dispensing systems, but we're not able to offer other financial incentives that uh, you know the mass market beer guys do. And a lot of times, you, like you mentioned before, you have to wait until yes. these existing contracts are up yeah. until the bar has a free line. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but I think what's encouraging is, uh, I think ultimately, the customer wins, uh, the end beer drinker, as long as bars know that uh, you know there's demand for it, um, I think uh, the one-time financial incentives may not be as big a deal. So Roundhouse has been a pioneer. It's, small, you know, it's a relatively small place, but they, uh, they do beer dispensing the right way, they have a cold room inside and they dispense off of that beer is kept fresh at all times but they invested in that system by themselves and now um, in Hong Kong, uh, one thing that definitely happens is trends when they take hold, they move very fast so if others see that this concept is working, they're going to you know, they don't want to be left behind and uh, so I, I definitely see more and more of this happening we probably went by Tipping Point yesterday. They are also, not only are they planning to make their own beer, but they also have guest taps and they have a proper dispensing system, which is their own. So we'll see more and more of that. Yeah. Tell us about the tax lift. When was that and, and what was that? The tax lift, I think, started in 2000. 
2005, I want to say, they talked about it, and then it was first lifted for wine, as far as I remember, and later on for beer, uh, which was a little curious because during my time here to 1999 to 2003, they actually increased the taxes first from 20 to 30 to 40 percent, if I remember right, then it became almost unfeasible. And then a little later they abolished it completely. And that was good for the wine side, since then there are expensive wine auctions held here. And finally it also affected us. Uh, it becomes more interesting for small breweries to set up shop and start brewing. I mean, before you had to have the, the customs and excise uh, inspector coming in for, for every filling, every uh, production. They sealed up your equipment with little plastic seals they had to cut, you know. That's, a huge burden, a huge burden. Um, again, under the Food and Environmental Hygiene Department, you have to follow the hygiene code, you have to basically do what they say, but right. it's far less restrictive than when there was tax money involved. Right. I mean, we are used to working clean, so this is not really right. a big task. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's very like that. Brewing is glorified janitorial work. Yeah. <laughs> super, super. Uh, and then, do you have to register your beer label names or anything like no. that? No, no. Wow. Just, yeah. So whatever you want to brew, yeah, you can. Absolutely. We needed a barcode for every beer. You had to inform the customs and excise before how much ingredients to yeah. use, what the beer is called, how much alcohol it will have. Again, apply for the barcode before you actually brew the beer. Right. Right. All these things is gone. It's just now we can do this experiments with matcha, with, with soba, with yeah. these things. There was a little gray area when uh, the customs and excise gave up on it and, and no tax was collected anymore. And before actually the food and environmental hygiene department took over the responsibility. There were about two years gray area where nobody actually knew what license you need right now. <laughs> but now the rules are pretty much defined. You need a food factory license from there. Those two years were great. You could run a brewery without any license whatsoever. Or any oversight. <laughs> <laughs> How do people deal with cask ale in Hong Kong? How many cask ale setups are there set up here in Hong Kong? I only know one at the Globe, um, and uh, and probably came in when Typhoon was around. Yeah. Is there going to be a cask ale component to Beertopia? Um, I don't know. Not there should. You should not set up a cask tent, man. Good. Set up. Yeah. Why not? That's yeah. <laughs> no, okay. okay. Yeah. But you guys naturally carbonate your beer. Yes, yes, it's already so, natural. Yeah, tell us about that. So you guys are naturally... Why did you choose to naturally carbonate your beer? And well, what does it mean to naturally carbonate? A couple of reasons. I mean, we obviously... Several reasons. I think it made sense from many standpoints. One, it saves space. We don't need extra bright tanks. Two, we have this beautiful natural CO2 produced. Why waste it? Um, and, uh, you know, save some expense on artificial CO2. And I do think that there's a bit of a risk um, if you don't do it properly of carboxylic acid formation, if you do it at a certain pace when you actually force carbonate. So all of those reasons have just made sense to preserve what's natural. Uh, in fact, we are going with this. We're calling our beers natural ales, uh, unfiltered and pasteurized, naturally carbonated. Mm-hmm. Um, no stabilizers or finings of any sort. Um, so just... Uh, Do you know... I, I, I actually want to return this question to <laughs> 
why don't everybody do yeah, that? Why would you buy something you get for free? I mean, the, the bunching apparatus to amortize itself takes a little bit, but it's not a big investment. I mean, it's not rocket science what these little things are. I'm yeah. always wondering why not everybody is doing that, frankly. I mean, I'm, tr I'm coming from Germany. I did my apprenticeship over 20 years ago. It was common there. I, yeah. I saw the, the bunching apparatus 100 years old. This is nothing new. This was done since... Yeah. I actually think that a lot of people do it simply because they're filtering, right? If you're filtering, you, then you have to... Uh, so for very small plants, yeah, you lose a lot of CO2. I mean, yeah. in, in bigger plants, you keep the pressure throughout the filter bits. I think it's awesome. Yeah. And it's tasting great. These are definitely yeah. not under-carbonated by any means. I mean, these are, these are beautifully carbonated beers that you have gone um, through this process. And so you had to order specific equipment to do that because most places don't make fermenters that are capable of handling the PSI. Is that correct? Uh, it is just a, a small attachment, actually. Uh, you can hook up to the, the cleaning, to the CIP line, uh, which releases pressure and holds pressure in a certain way. Uh, usually through a membrane and a spring. Right. Again, not rocket science. Right. Yeah. So they're made of stainless steel parts. Okay, metal is expensive until in the moment, but this is not as much. This is a, a kilogram of equipment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the tanks do need to be thick enough and rated for that pressure, which, uh, which I think, if you, most breweries are custom built anyway, so you know, if you really want it, it shouldn't be a problem to to get higher pressure in it. Well, thank you, Uli, Rohit, Mary. No, thank you so much for joining us on Ferment About It. Young Master Ales. Where can we find out more information about Young Master Ales? Youngmasterales.com. Youngmasterales.com. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram page, all at Young Master Ales. One word. Ferment About It. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.